keep plugging away here. <coughs> the Feast of Tabernacles is way in the rearview mirror at this point, but we still haven't finished Deuteronomy. Maybe we should have done it like Nehemiah and stay at it six, eight hours a day <coughs> during the feast. That's all right. It's a continuation. Anyway, we got down to chapter 25. <clears throat> it says, if there be a controversy between men, uh, and, and again, this is a summary of a lot of the ordinances and statutes that were given in Leviticus and in Numbers and so on. Uh, he's giving them a speech here before they go into the promised land and just reviewing and reminding them of some of these things. So he doesn't go into great detail in a lot of it, but just reminds of certain things. So if there be a controversy between men, and they come to judgment, that the judges may judge them, uh, then they shall justify the righteous and condemn the wicked. That isn't the way it is in our nation today. It's who can hire the most lawyers for the longest, in many cases, or who can buy the judges. There is no justice in the land anymore. And you can't count on justice. I was just familiar with a situation where uh, there was a custody case, and a man who's never even been married to the woman is trying to get custody of the kids and claims he's had custody and told a whole bunch of lies to try to get the mother put in jail and got a court order. But we found out that the uh, family had money, and they knew the judge, and they knew lawyers, and that's the way it works these days. But we're to judge righteous judgment, God says, to look into a matter and say the way things are, not to pervert judgment. It shall be, if the wicked man be worthy to be beaten, that the judge shall cause him to lie down, and to be beaten before his face. The judge is to stay there, he's to watch, and it will be done according to proper protocol. And he can put as many stripes on up to a certain point. Forty stripes he may give him and not exceed, lest if he should exceed and beat him above these <clears throat> with many stripes, then your brother should seem vile to you, beyond the point of dignity, beyond the point of punishment, but then it becomes abuse. And God did not want to let it get out of hand, so that some who you didn't like, you just beat them till they died, and others you would let up at a certain point. So he may put a maximum of 40 stripes you shall not muzzle the ox when he treads out the corn. Well, that seems strange here in the middle of these things, but it's a principle. And Paul used this principle in 1 Corinthians 9 and in 1 Timothy 5 <clears throat> in terms of paying the New Testament ministry. Uh, he was talking about that very thing, and then he quoted this, You shall not muzzle the ox that treads out the corn. Uh, the principle is, if anybody works, if anybody does, then they should be recompensed for that. If brethren dwell together, and one of them die, and have no child, 
The wife of the dead shall not marry without unto a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her to him to wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. Now that might seem difficult in some cases. Uh, some of you have had brother-in-laws you'd prefer not to marry, uh, I, I suspect. But this was to continue the continuity of the family. And it shall be that the firstborn which she bears shall succeed in the name of his brother which is dead, that his name be not put out of Israel. So even though the brother-in-law took her to wife, uh, it was to be the name of the original husband put on the firstborn child, so that that name would continue. It was God's way of providing family continuity. And if the man like not to take his brother's wife, then let his brother's wife go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to raise up to his brother a name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of my husband's brother. Now, if she married somebody else that wasn't kin, then the name of the child would go on that husband. But if it were a brother, then it was in the same bloodline, and the name of the brother-in-law could be conferred upon the child, uh, being in the bloodline, and therefore continue it. But he might choose not to do so. He might not like her. And there's another problem involved as well. He might not want to let the name of what was actually his biological child go to his brother. That was what Onan did. He went ahead and took her for his pleasure, but then he spilled the seed on the ground, and the spilling seed on the ground is not the problem. It was refusing to give uh, the woman a child in his brother's name. That was the real crime. And that is spelled out right here. Uh, if he chooses not to perform that duty, then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. And if he stand to it and say, I like not, I like not to take her. In other words, that's what I said and that's what I meant. I don't want her. Then shall his brother's wife come to him in the presence of the elders and loose his shoe from off his foot and spit in his face. Now that, was, that would be quite an indignity, a great shame to stand there and have a woman spit in your face. Uh, it's kind of like when David and his men were shaved and they would not come out in public until their beards grew back. It was a public shame to be barefaced. I wondered about that, but I think it's an Old Testament thing, and if we want to shave and look girly, I guess it's okay today. Uh, but... That's not the way that it was. Okay. Uh, and shall answer and say, So shall it be done to that man that will not build up his, father, his brother's house. And his name shall be called in Israel the house of him that has, has his shoe loosed. They would change the name of the house where he dwelled from whatever name he had, his surname, to the old boy that had his shoe loosed would be his new name, his nickname. 
So it would go on not just the spitting in the face, but it would be uh, remembered in Israel that that was the man who refused to take care of his brother's family. Verse 11, when men strive together one with another, and the wife of the one draws near for to deliver her husband out of the hand of him that smites him, and put forth her hand and takes him by the secrets, then you shall cut off her hand, your eyes shall not pity her. Sounds pretty harsh, doesn't it? Uh, And yet, we could understand that That's unfair advantage in one thing, in one way. And in another way, modesty, in the way we dress, the way we act, is one of the keys to keeping proper chastity in the nation and among people. So, it was not legal to take unfair advantage in that manner. Um... You could hit him over the head. That would be okay. If you had a fireplace going and there's a stick of wood there, it wasn't too hot on one end, you could take it out and jam it on the side of his neck. Uh, You know, you could could find whatever's handy and hit him over the head with it or whatever, and that would have been fine. That's not unfair advantage. You don't have to be like the... In the movies, it's funny how they always do it. The girl always just stands in the corner and screams. Uh, No. I I don't think that's really reality. That's just the movies. But don't take unfair advantage. I'm glad in many respects we're not under specifically the eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth today that there can be forgiveness, there can be mercy, and yet these principles are here to teach us fairness in all things and to teach us equity, to teach us proper judgment. Uh, So these principles can be applied, even as Paul brought that one forward and brought many others forward in the New Testament. All the New Testament writers did. They took these principles from back here and applied them to the New Testament circumstance. Therefore... Since we are New Testament church now, only 2,000 years removed from then, we're still under the same administration of having the Holy Spirit and being the church of God. So even as Paul and Peter and James and the others read these principles and then applied them to modern society, we take them today, and our society is very much different than it was in Peter and Paul's day. Now we have automobiles instead of Horses, well, we still have horses, but we use automobiles mostly in planes and trains and every other kind of thing you might name. And there are no rules written for automobiles in here and how to use them, are there? Yes, there are. The principles apply. If you were to build a railing around the top of your house, if you had a flat-topped house to keep people from falling off, then you should do whatever you can to make your automobile safe and to drive it in such a way that you don't injure or hurt someone. 
It's the exact same principle, loving your neighbor as yourself. He made a lot of statutes and judgments here to show them how to apply those things. Now, we have to take these same scriptures in Deuteronomy. They're not old. They're not out of date. It's just how does it apply in principle to today and the things that we do today. I had a couple of guys up in Nevada that were, thought they were really cute when they put the preacher on a horse that they knew at some time during the day was going to cause a problem. And I rode him for several hours rounding up cattle. And toward the end of the day, he saw a gopher run, and he just came totally unglued. And we were at a steep angle about like that. Threw me down the hill, broke both my arms. And those guys had thought it was real funny when they put me on the horse. And later on, they were real sorry about that and offered me a drink out of their bottle that they were getting into at that point, out of their sorrow. But uh, that was a different way, time, and a different story. But are there rules in here specifically about riding horses? No, not necessarily, but... There are things in here about being careful that we don't injure others. Fun can be fun if it's fun, but if there's hurt and injury involved, we need to be careful. Some of you like to do practical jokes. It's okay as long as nobody gets hurt. So think through your joke and see what might ultimately come of it before you do it. And it could come back on you. (laughs) You have to be careful because people do get revenge in those deals. All right, let's see. We're down to verse 13. You shall not have in your bag different weights, a great and a small. You shall not have in your house different measures, a great and a small. But you shall have a perfect and just weight. A perfect and just measure shall you have. Don't cheat them. It's like the old jokes about the butchers that have heavy thumbs. They weigh your meat and their thumbs on the edge of the scale. And it gets a little heavier that way. Uh, I don't trust butchers. I've seen them many, many times give you an old tough cow back for a nice tender one that you sent in. Or you get less meat and you have no way really of knowing. Uh, They're famed for doing that to you and are others. But God says, always be just and fair in whatever you're doing, whether it's weighing something out or in a deal or a circumstance, be sure that you're not cheating someone. That your days may be lengthened in the land which the eternal your God gives you. If you follow these principles and take care of people, you're going to live longer generally. And God will bless you so that you might. For all that do such things and all that do unrighteously are an abomination to the eternal your God. Maybe we don't think of it as an abomination, but God only names so many things abominations. Uh, There's one in Proverbs where he lists seven. But he says an unjust weight and measure, cheating someone, 
You say you're giving them this and you're not. I mean, you can make whatever deal you want, but make sure you stick to it and do it the way you say you will do it. That's the important thing. And then if it comes out that you can't, you make it good in some way, form, or fashion so that they are not treated unfairly. Remember what Amalek did unto you, by the way, when you were come forth out of Egypt. That was something in their memory bank. How he met you, by the way, and smote the hindmost of you, even all that were feeble behind you, when you were faint and weary, and he feared not God. Therefore it shall be, when the eternal your God has given you rest from all your enemies round about in the land which the eternal your God gives you for an inheritance to possess it, that you shall blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven, you shall not forget it. Don't forget to do it. Of course, it wasn't too long until they forgot to wipe out the enemies that God had said would be within the land that he gave them. And to this day, some of those peoples remain around and they are still a thorn in the flesh to Israel because they did not do what God said to do thousands of years ago. When God tells us something, even though it might seem harsh, do it the way God says. Because He has His reasons. And there will be implications down the road that we don't even know about or understand or think of. Now when God makes His people, the church, here in the end time, a sharp threshing instrument as he says he will do in Micah 4 and Isaiah 41, I think it is. He will want us to do some threshing of people. Now, are we going to back off and say, well, I can't do that. God, that's too harsh. God wouldn't want us to do that. What about when the two witnesses specifically have to perform those plagues? that will wind up killing people. Do you be tender-hearted and say, oh, I, well, you couldn't do that. That wouldn't be right. That's hurtful. That's against everything I've been taught all my life. I don't think that that would be an easy thing to do. But God says, do it, and He has His reasons. So, all of these things about death penalties are not just in the past. There are some in the future. And whoever is involved in these things had better pay heed and attention to God and what He says to do, and do it the way He says to do it, whether you like it or not. Chapter 26, and, and it shall be, when you are come into the land which the eternal your God gives you for an inheritance, and possess it, and dwell therein, that you shall take of the first of all the fruit of the earth which you shall bring of your land that the eternal your God gives you, and shall put it in a basket, and shall go to the place which the eternal your God shall choose to place his name there. And that, very clearly, through many scriptures, is Jerusalem. I won't go back again and prove all that. We've been there. But that is the city in a tribe that God choose or chose 
And he said so several times. But here they were going into the land. They had not gone yet, and that delineation had not been yet made. So Moses was putting it in general terms. And you should go to the priest uh, that shall be in those days and say to him, I profess this day unto the eternal your God that I am come into the country which the eternal swore to our fathers for to give us. Here again, it applied as they were about to go across the Jordan into the promised land. And it will apply again to us because God is going to lead us back into the exact same spots that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob walked. There might be some confusion on where that is right now, but that will become clear in time. And the priest shall take the basket out of your hand and set it down before the altar of the Eternal, your God. I do believe there will be an altar built. Uh, I'm becoming more and more convinced that not only a spiritual temple, but a physical must be built. And I think that Ezekiel's temple is the one. It's very interesting when you get into reading about it and how it was never built and how it would never fit in Jerusalem, in the Middle East, or in the Holy Land. It was too big for that. And it included more land than is there. Even the whole city would not include just the temple complex. So something is amiss. Something, there's something to the story that is not known. We shall see. And you shall speak and say before the Eternal your God, Assyrian ready to perish was my father, and he went down into Egypt and sojourned there with a few, and became there a nation great, mighty, and populous. And the Egyptians evil entreated us and afflicted us and laid upon us hard bondage. And when we cried to the Eternal God of our fathers that the Eternal heard our voice and looked on our affliction and our labor and our oppression... And the Eternal brought us forth out of Egypt with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with great terribleness and with signs and with wonders. And he has brought us into this place and has given us this land, even a land that flows with milk and honey. And he says that the deliverance in the end time in Jeremiah, I think 31, will be so great that we won't even remember or recall these stories of the Red Sea and the deliverance, the plagues of Egypt. It is going to be that dramatic. And now behold, I have brought the first fruits. Now these are things that they were to do. I have brought the first fruits of the land which you, O Eternal, have given me, and you shall set it before the Eternal your God at the altar and worship before the Eternal your God. And you shall rejoice in every good thing which the eternal your God has given to you and to your house, you and the Levite and the stranger that is among you. When you have made an end of tithing all the tithes of your increase the third year, showing that that was, or at least partially explaining, that there was a tithe to be taken in the third year. It actually was in the third and the sixth years of a seven-year cycle. But this tithe was different than the feast tithe. The feast tithe you were to take in your hand to the feast 
and you were to keep the feast. And you weren't to do that every third year. You were to go to the feast every year and not appear before the eternal empty. This one you did not bind up in your hand and take to Jerusalem. This one you gave to the Levite, the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, that they may eat within your gates and be filled. In another place it says that you are to take this third tithe and hold it within your gates and give to the fatherless, the stranger, the widow, and the orphan, and the, and the Levite. So this is the third year. Then you shall say before the eternal your God, I have brought away the hallowed things out of my house. Now I want you to notice here something that we've never been able to apply before in all the years of the New Test or the end time church. He's speaking to the nation here, not to the individual. He's telling them all. You shall say before the eternal your God, I, or we, have brought away the hallowed things out of my house and also have given them to the Levite, to the stranger, to the fatherless, and to the widow, widow, according to all your commandments which you have commanded me. I have not transgressed your commandments, neither have I forgotten them. This is something we are to remember and something we are to go before God and rehearse. I have done as you said with this third year tithe. I have not eaten thereof in my morning. Even when I was poor, even when I had need, I controlled myself, I managed my finances, I managed this third tithe fund properly, and I did not dip into it. Neither have I taken away anything thereof for any unclean use, that is, for anything that it was not specifically addressed to. I kept it for the purpose, the clean, the right purpose, that God had ordained, nor given thereof for the dead. But I have hearkened to the voice of the Eternal my God, and have done according to all that you have commanded me. Now we come to the place that we have read, and when we've kept our third tithe years over the years, we have asked God for a blessing for ourselves, have we not? And we have used this verse as the authority for that. But it is not on a personal level only. Notice what it says. I have done all you commanded me, or we have done all you commanded us in a larger sense, since he's directing this at all of them. Here's the prayer to God. Look down from your holy habitation, from heaven, and bless your people Israel. Not me. The nation. The people. And the land which you have given us, as you swore unto our fathers, a land that flows with milk and honey. Now we have kept third tithe through the years, through the decades in this end time church, but everyone has done it based on when they were baptized or the nearest feast or Passover, however it was administered locally, uh, and started keeping it from that time, and everybody was in a different cycle. 
somewhere in the first or second or the fifth or the sixth or the seventh year of the seven-year cycle. And therefore, since it was being done on totally an individual basis, then people were asking, since I have done this, bless me. That's not what this says. It says, we have done this, bless us. Now I submit to you that at the end of this past Feast of Tabernacles, we chose to adjust the cycle so that we would all be doing this together beginning two years from now after the feast, beginning the third year. And at the end of that third year, we can collectively say, we together as a people, a nation, a unit, just like they were, we have done this together, great God. Now bless your people Israel. And we can keep this and ask it in the fullness for which it was intended. Not just in a slipshod manner, doing it in an individual way and trying to apply it to our circumstance. Not only that, but I believe that God has already begun to give us some of the land that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob walked. And that he is going to give us more of it very shortly, and that he will make it flow with milk and honey. So I fully anticipate (coughs) that three years from now, we will be able to come back and read this and claim this promise as a unit, as a group, as a family, as a body. I think that will be a terrific upgrade over the way it has been done for the last 60 years in the Church of God. Verse 16, This day the Eternal your God has commanded you to do these statutes and judgments. You shall therefore keep and do them with all your heart and with all your soul. That comes up quite often, doesn't it? All your heart, all your soul. Not just worship God, but... How do you worship God? You keep His commandments with all your heart and soul, and that reflects what your heart and soul really are. He does not like a feigned heart, a straddle-the-fence heart, a half-heart. And he says, not hearers of the word, but doers shall be blessed. That was quoted in the New Testament in several ways, several times. But God judges by what? The fruits. Not just by feelings, not just by emotions. Oh, I love the Lord. There are a lot of people that have feelings in their heart for the Lord. That is not true worship. That is not what God is after. God says that the quality of your heart is based upon how you keep His commandments. That's what it's all about. This is the love of God, 
but you keep his commandments. New Testament, Apostle John, 1 John 5, 3. The last man standing, the one whom Christ was the very closest to, by dint of personality and heart, was the one that said, it's not just emotion, boys and girls. It's how you keep the commandments of God with all your heart and with all your soul. That shows what your heart is. If your heart is divided, you'll be flippant about the ways, the laws, the statutes of God. So if you want to know what God thinks of your heart, you need study and analyze how well you keep His commandments. Then you'll have a pretty good handle on where your heart is. As God ponders your heart. How does He ponder it? By watching the things you do, watching the things you think. That's how He makes that judgment. <clears throat> you have avouched the eternal this day to be your God. He said, You've stood before me and said, The Lord God is our God. And to walk in his ways and to keep his statutes and his commandments and his judgments and to hearken to his voice. We stand right where these people stood with Moses today. I'm not Moses, and you're not those ancient Israelites, lest somebody misinterpret. But we are in the same circumstance that they were. So these words are very powerful for today. <clears throat> now, if we, as we enter into the promises that accrue to the end-time church, take this vouchsafe, our word, that we will do God's ways. And we have, have we not? Through repentance and baptism, and we've since avowed that many times since. Virtually daily, don't we, in our prayers? We renew that covenant and ask God to forgive us for having broken it yesterday. Help me keep it better today. In some form or another, our prayers take that direction. So he says, if you will do this, <clears throat> he's made you a particular or a redeemed people, as he has promised you, and that you should keep all his commandments. Live by every word of God is quoted twice in the New Testament from Deuteronomy in the Old Testament. Matthew 4, 4, Luke 4, 4, Deuteronomy 8, 3, I think it is. Verse 19, And to make you high above all nations which he has made, in praise and in name and in honor, and that you may be a holy people to the eternal near God as he has spoken. Our holiness cannot be according to our brand of religion or righteousness, but according to his standards, his rules, his laws, his righteousness. And he will make us high above all nations. 
Now, he did, on a physical level, make Israel here in the end time high above all nations on earth, did he not? He had promised that physical blessing to Abraham, that his people would be as the sand of the sea, and that they would rise above all other nations. And America, Britain, Joseph, and Joseph was given double blessings, and his branch ran over the wall there in Genesis 49. He has given this nation, Ephraim, the greatest blessings of any nation on earth, bar none, by far. Remember what we read recently about how there would be iron and copper or brass in the ground that we might dig? And as I read over that during the feast, I said it would be interesting to look into that. Well, I got my internet back up and looked up Israel over there. They have no iron. There's no iron anywhere in that nation to dig from the ground. There is one copper mine, and it isn't a very good one at that. There are almost no minerals to dig from the ground in Israel. The only minerals that are listed at all, other than that copper mine, are things that are in the salt in the Dead Sea. That's it. No others. Potassium and bromine and things they can get out of the water in the salt. And yet he promised us a land that would be full of minerals to dig from the earth. We have Kennecott right up here in Utah, one of the biggest copper brass mines in the world. We have Iron County, Utah, just above us here because of iron mines there. Go to the Great Lakes and they have huge iron mines around Lake Superior and places around there. This land is full of minerals that God gave to dig from the land. Even those two specifically that are not over there. Not iron at all, and only a little copper. I find that very interesting. <clears throat> and he said the land he would give them to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would have those things. So where did Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob walk? It had to be where those things were. Refute that if you will. Chapter 27. <clears throat> and Moses, with the elders of Israel, commanded the people, saying, Keep all the commandments which I command you this day. And it shall be on the day when you shall pass over Jordan to the land which the eternal your God gives you, that you shall set up great stones and plaster them with plaster. And you shall write upon them all the words of this law when you are passed over, <clears throat> that you may go in unto the land which the eternal your God gives you, a land that flows with milk and honey, as the eternal God of your fathers has promised you. As very recently, I went down to Los Lunas, New Mexico with some others and saw written in ancient Hebrew on a rock there, the Ten Commandments. Got pictures of it. Some of you have been there. I don't think the Indians did that. They didn't say, Oh, great-grandfather spirit, blah, blah, blah. They're the Ten Commandments written in ancient Hebrew. 
Now, it's not plastered on plaster, and it's not near the Jordan River. It's near the Pig River. But uh, (laughs) they may have written them near the Jordan River, too. There are some petroglyphs near where probably the Jordan River originally was that, uh, that are very obviously Israelite. Anyway, when they crossed the river, they were to erect a monument of stones and plaster them over and write the words of this law. Uh, when you are passed over, that you may go into the land which eternal your God gives you, a land that flows with milk and honey, as the eternal God of your fathers has promised you. So whatever God does with us, if he does some of these things again, which he, I believe, will, uh, the laws, the commandments of God need to be first and foremost the thing that is on our minds as we go into the land that God has given us. Because it is those commandments that will keep that land intact, that will cause God's blessing to come as it did then. But they turned from those commandments very quickly, and those blessings were removed, and curses came upon them. That is written there for us upon whom the ends of the world have come, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians. Verse 4, Therefore it shall be, when you be gone over Jordan, that you shall set up these stones, which I command you this day, in Mount Ebal, and you shall plaster them with plaster, and there you shall build an altar to the eternal your God, an altar of stones. You shall not lift up any iron tool upon them. <clears throat> Had to have been some iron to make iron tools. Where'd they get iron, I wonder? You shall build the altar of the eternal your God of whole stones, and you shall offer burnt offerings thereon unto the eternal your God. And you shall offer peace offerings, and shall eat there, and rejoice before the eternal your God. Now, our prayers, our hymns, our sweet incense and worship to God. Uh, When I was not able to be here for a Bible study on the new moon, I opted that you sing psalms, sing hymns, sing the psalms of God, And that is about as pure a form of worship as there is, to sing songs to God. Uh, And that's mentioned quite a few times in Scripture. That may do more good and sound better to God than teaching and preaching does at times. That's why it is part of our service every week, part of our worship, to sing hymns to God. To him it is like a prayer, and it's a sweet incense. Now, I think that if there is a physical temple built, and that the physical sacrifices are reinstalled, it is not because we need them for salvation. It is because the people of the world are about to go into the millennium shortly thereafter, after the tribulation and seven last plagues, And that will be introduced there. So if God has an end-time temple built, it is a microcosm of the world tomorrow. It is to have in great detail, in a miniature version, that which will be once Christ returns to this earth. And it will be there as a witness to the world. That's the purpose of it. Not to offer us salvation, not to offer us forgiveness. We have Christ's blood. 
But those people who live into the millennium are going to know what's coming because it will be built before their very eyes and it will be pointed to as a witness of what God is about to do. Now I begin to understand why God might need or want a physical temple. Not for us, but for a witness to the world. And it will be built at the true Jerusalem, where it will fit. And it is much larger than that Jerusalem over there and the Temple Mount and all of that combined. But it is much smaller than the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. The dimensions are much smaller. Someone did a study, and I forget now, I didn't read it all in detail, but it showed that the dimensions of that multiplied out would envelop the whole earth. I found that a very interesting concept. That's from the land given at Ezekiel's temple set aside for the twelve tribes. Uh, And we know that the millennium will be a world-ruling empire. So that lends a little credence to me to the idea that God may want that as a microcosm, but it is a scale model of the whole earth. Isn't that interesting? It's an example, a scale model, that then will cover the whole earth when Christ rules here on the earth. Bingo. What an incredible concept. I want to go back and study that. I was reading it last night, and I didn't have time to to go into all the detail about how he did the math, but uh, he had the rings uh, around the earth that showed that it was a microcosm of the whole earth. Anyway, that's a bit aside, but it does talk about an altar here and going into the land, and there may be an application of this, the spiritual application of our prayers and songs to God, but there may be also a physical application for the people of this earth to have an example. So don't discount that entirely here. I don't know this for sure, but the evidence seems to be mounting. You know, good and well, the Jews want to build a physical temple over there. And that could very well be the false temple, the Jewish temple, not God's temple. Only God's people can build God's temple. Understand that. In Nehemiah's day, or was it Ezra, wherever it is there, one of the two, I guess it was Ezra, where the others, some enemies and people that weren't of Israel, volunteered to help build the temple. They said, no, go away, this is our job. So if it be a spiritual temple, obviously it's our job. And if it be a physical temple, it's also our job. Because we are the only representatives, those he's called out here at the end, of God on earth today. The Jews do not represent God in any shape, form, or fashion. Christ told them, I will have nothing more to do with you until you accept those whom I have sent, and they have not done it to this day. So he has nothing to do with them. They're not anyone we are to look to for any authority on anything. And anything they do is not of God in heaven. 
They are divorced from God. He has not remarried them. He has engaged us to marry him. <clears throat> and we're the only ones he pays attention to because we're the ones he's going to marry. It's that simple. Okay, uh, verse 7, You shall offer peace offerings and shall eat there and rejoice before the eternal your God. And you shall write upon the stones all the words of this law very plainly. Don't write it like a doctor does his signature or I write things. Do it very plainly so anyone can read it. And Moses and the priests, the Levites, spoke to all Israel, saying, Take heed and hearken, O Israel. This day you are become the people of the eternal your God. By letting them cross into the promised land, he accepted them. That's a pretty momentous occasion. At some point, God is going to accept his end-time people and turn his face back to them. That will be a momentous occasion, just like it happened here. may not be the exact same circumstance, but it could be as we go into the land. We're just at the base of Mount Canaan right now, aren't we? what it's called right there on the map. Get out your road map. It's called Canaan Mountains, Mount Canaan. We're right at the base of it. I suppose that's just coincidence, however. And that was sarcasm, however. <clears throat> Verse 11, And Moses charged the people the same day, saying, these shall stand upon Mount Gerizim to bless the people when you are come over to Jordan, or over Jordan, Simeon and Levi and Judah and Issachar and Joseph and Benjamin. So, these tribes were to stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people. And these shall stand upon, upon Mount Ebal to curse, or as a curse, Reuben, Gad, Asher, and Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali. Well, that's a kind of strange thing, isn't it? You've got some of the tribes stand over here, pronounce a blessing. The others stand over here and pronounce a cursing. And they're just tribes of Israel. If you break this down, it's quite interesting. In Genesis 35, it gives the sons of, of uh, Jacob. And the ones that stood on Mount Gerizim to bless were the sons of Leah and Rachel. Remember, the blessings were to be to the free woman, as it says in Galatians 4.31 of Sarah and uh, uh, Hagar. <clears throat> but I think the same principle applies here. Now, the ones who were stood on the side of cursing were the sons of uh, Zilpah and Bilhah, the handmaids. And they threw in Reuben who was unstable as water, and one of the few who had negative things said about him in Genesis 49 and other places, uh, as well as the youngest son of Leah. So he, he made it where it was six and six, so he took a couple away from 
the free women and put them on the other side. But it's not just that these tribes are blessed and those tribes are not blessed. I don't think that is the meaning of this. He put them here as a witness. And he put the ones of the free woman as the blessing, which makes sense. But he is about to give a chapter here, a whole discourse on blessings and cursings, good and evil, that would come upon Israel depending upon what they did. So he had them stand, all the tribes on one mountain and all the other tribes on another mountain, to represent what he was about to say. One of those things, you know, you can be speaking, and people can sit and they can sleep or whatever, or they can have their mind wander off. But if you have visual aids, you hold something up, you yell, or you do something out of the ordinary, it gets people's attention more. So he wanted to make a visual thing here, to make it very clear that this isn't just words. You six tribes, and there are a lot of people, I want you all to go on this mountain, and I want these six tribes to all go on that mountain. Now this has meaning. These represent obedience and blessing. These represent disobedience and cursing. So it wasn't that all those people and all those tribes would necessarily be that. But it was to make a point. Verse 14, And the Levites shall speak and say to all the men of Israel with a loud voice, Cursed be the man that makes any graven or molten image an abomination to the eternal, the work of the hands of the craftsman, and put it in a secret place, And all the people shall answer and say, Amen. So he divided the people up, said blessing and cursing. Then he had the Levites enter the picture and speak of the law, the first law, the first of the Ten Commandments, and have all the people say, Amen. So they were very much involved in this. You know how uncomfortable most people get when you say, How many have done such and such? Raise your hand. And two or three or four brave souls will raise it, unless it's just so obvious a thing. Because if there's any question they're being tricked, or it looks like they didn't know something they should have known, most people will not even respond. Here he created response. Acted all this out. Verse 16, Cursed be he that sets light by his father or his mother, and all the people shall say, Amen. So what has he done here? He took the first commandment, Honor our Father in heaven. And then he took the fifth, which is where it turns to honoring your physical father and mother. Or, as Christ put it, the first commandment is love God. The second commandment is love people, love men. So he summarized the Ten Commandments here. Didn't do the whole thing, but did those two important ones that represent the rest. And all the people said, Amen. Then he goes on to some uh, lesser 
statutes and judgments. Cursed, the still important, but lesser in comparison to those two. Cursed be the he, remo- he that removes his neighbor's landmark, and all the people shall say, Amen. Uh, don't change the fence. Don't take some of your neighbor's land. Cursed be he that makes the blind to wander out of the way, and all the people shall say, Amen. Taking advantage of somebody who is incapacitated, blind or deaf or whatever, and take advantage of them. And it could even mean blinded spiritually or uh, blind in mind in leading them off and astray, as opposed to someone physically blind that you cause to stumble in the rocks. And we have more of the type where we lead them astray today than we do people who would cause somebody to wander off and fall into a hole in the ground. You know, most people aren't that cruel. They wouldn't cause somebody to fall among the rocks and die or be hurt badly. But they would lead them away from God, wittingly or unwittingly at times. That's why God puts such strength in the places He says, Be careful to be a teacher. Don't enter that lightly. Double judgment comes. Verse 19, Cursed be he that perverts the judgment of the stranger, fatherless, and widow, and all the people shall say, Amen. That comes under the second of the great commandments, taking care of people who are unfortunate or in need, and uh, taking from them or cheating them or whatever. Cursed be he that lies with his father's wife, uh, may have been a stepmother, not a real mother there in 1 Corinthians 5, I don't know, but it's an incestuous thing, because he uncovers his father's skirt, and all the people shall say, Amen. Uh, so that would cover any and all varieties of incest. Just the principles here, a summary. Cursed be he that lies with any manner of beast, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be he that lies with his sister, the daughter of his father, or the daughter of his mother, and all the people shall say, Amen. Now, there was a time when you could marry your sister or your brother. Uh, Nothing was thought of it earlier, but as the gene pool narrowed, uh, it became problematic, and it was not something that God wanted continued in Israel, obviously. Cursed be he that lies with his mother-in-law, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be he that smites his neighbor secretly, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be he that takes reward to slay an innocent person, a hit man for pay, in other words. And all the people shall say, Amen. And then, <laughs> he gives it a, a an overall... Every in, everything inclusive comment. Cursed be he that confirms not all the words of this law to do them. So if he's leaving any loose ends, he's only stating a few here to get the principle across, then he just gives a general overall statement. All the law. And all the people shall say, Amen. Good thing to confirm the way of God before God allows us to enter the blessings that are ahead. 
Remember some of the comments I've made, I think, during the feast. Are we ready? Are we prepared for blessings? Can we handle blessings? Most people cannot. Have we been through enough trouble, trial, heartache, sickness, pain, misery? Have we been tried and tested enough that we can accept blessings without forgetting God? That's why he reminded them of all the laws of God before they were able to cross the Jordan. Can you go into a new land, into a new blessing, and have God's face shine on you and not turn back to your physical, carnal way of doing things and forget God? That is a question. And we need to all analyze our hearts and souls very carefully to see if we are capable of it. You know, God in the past, when he had somebody that he was going to use, like Abraham, or like Moses, or like Joseph, or like Paul, he put them through an awful lot, didn't he? And if he's going to use us, he's got to put us through a lot. So when we go through a lot, let's not be discouraged. Let's not get down. Let's not say, well, God must have forgotten us. I think Joseph could have said that sitting in that prison. I think Daniel could have said that sitting in that lion's den. Or the fiery furnace. Or Paul floating on a log in the ocean. And on and on it goes. God will not put more on us than we can stand. He may put more on us than we would like to stand. He is quite capable of that. And He has, and He will. God chastens every son whom He loves. Do you look at it truly that way when you're having trouble? Can't get a job, can't get enough work, sick, unhealthy, old, decrepit, dumb, ugly, whatever. Do you think it's more than you can take? Do you think that it's a blessing? Christ was born ugly. That was a blessing. It says he wasn't anybody that anybody would want to look at. You see, that's one of the trials that people who are less good-looking than others go through in life. If you're just dog-ugly... And people, you know, you, people look at you and they shudder. That's hard to live with. You know, if you're a different color, or you're way overweight, or not good looking, or whatever, 
maybe you got Down syndrome or something wrong, palsy or something, and you go down the street and the kids laugh at you and point, and the mother's saying, don't do that. It's hard to take. It hurts. Christ was born ugly. People didn't walk up and say, oh, what a lovely baby. Well, he might have got uglier as he grew up. I don't know how ugly he was when he was born. But he was not a pretty human being. The Scripture says that. So that he might learn by the things he suffered, and so that he might go through what other people go through from a negative standpoint on this earth. So whatever's wrong with you, he shared in one form or another so that he might be your compassionate and merciful high priest. But that doesn't mean he doesn't paddle you to make sure that your conduct is what it ought to be. And that is part of the love he shows. If he doesn't straighten you up, that means he doesn't have the same love for you that he does with somebody that he does love more. Now, God loves everybody, and don't get all excited. He does not love everybody equally. Do we understand that? He loved John more than any of the other disciples. Jacob he loved, Esau he hated, he said. Now, if he loves you, he will chasten you. He will paddle you. So anytime things go bad, you should begin to feel a warm glow that God loves you. And that's why you're going through hard times. He's chosen you out of this world. He's called you. He's given you his Holy Spirit he has set you aside as a particular redeemed individual out of all the people on earth. So let's not have any more crybaby poopy pants when things go bad. Adjust our attitudes and be thankful that we're going through hard times so that our heart will be right toward God and will be meek and humble and loving and sweet and responsive to Him. That's what He's after. Easy to say, hard to do. Now that doesn't mean we won't hurt. I remember crying very loudly when I was paddled as a child. It hurt. And it was a bad thing if dad or mom would quit paddling me before I got humble. If I was still angry and pouting and hadn't changed my attitude, they hadn't done the job right. 
If the spirit of rebellion is still in that child and they pull away or have a mad attitude, you didn't finish the job. When God puts trials and trouble on us and He backs off and we still have a stubborn, carnal, resistant attitude, He didn't finish the job. But He will. Usually when my dad got done with me, the spirit of rebellion was gone. And the spirit of, oh, daddy, are you going to kill me, had arrived. And when he got done, my attitude was different than when he started. It's all about attitude. If you want God to ease up, then... He's listening. And parents know, and if they don't know, I don't know where their head is. When there's a change in the cry, when that cry goes from anger and rebellion to fear and repentance, you can hear it. Then's when you quit because the child has repented. You don't quit until he does repent. Even if you have to stop and get your breath and start over. God is after repentance and meekness and love and a sweet, meek spirit. The child's still pouting, you haven't done the job. If they run in the room and slam the door, you haven't done the job. You go in and you open the door and you bring them back out and you finish until they can be meek, repentant, and loving, and sit on your lap and give you hugs and kisses. Then you're done. That's all God wants out of you and me. And He'll keep on us until He gets it. And it's out of love. Not out of hate. It's out of love. Let's get into chapter 28. I doubt I can finish it. It shall come to pass, if you shall hear, hearken diligently to the voice of the Eternal your God. See, there's no rebellion there. There's no pouting there. There's no reserve there. There's, you listen carefully, diligently to what God says. Not only to listen and hear, but to observe and do all His commandments, which I command you this day, that the Eternal your God will set you on high above all nations of the earth. Now, He set this nation, and here again, like we've seen in every part of the Bible now, there is a physical fulfillment and a spiritual fulfillment. We see the physical nation around us, America today, Britain, Canada, the other tribes, nations of Israel, wherever they are. With the blessings being removed and the curses starting to come. He raised Israel above all nations on this earth. Made us the head and not the tail. And we disobeyed God and we are not a Christian nation by any stretch of the imagination. 
We worship the wrong God, and we know not what. And the curses are coming. Now, he's already scattered the church because we did not do what we should. And he's given opportunity now and space to repent with those who will listen and who will turn their hearts to God. And there is to be one more spiritual fulfillment of what we are about to read. If we, you and me, right here, will diligently hearken to God, what He says, and do and observe His commandments, He is going to set us high above all nations. Not only was physical Israel above all nations, the church as a body, will be above all nations. The witness that is made by the temple of God, be it only spiritual or if it includes a physical temple, will be a witness to the whole world. And the two, God has to have two individual witnesses, who go out against the world will be given total autonomy over all nations of the earth to do with them as they please in bringing cursing that God has pronounced upon them. They will be two representatives of His end-time witness who will be given power over all the earth, all the nations. And they will come from a body of people who observe to do all the commandments of God. Not only they, but we are his witnesses if we're part of his end-time faithful remnant. says that several times in Isaiah 41, 42, right through there. So this is a prophecy yet to be finally fulfilled one more time been fulfilled physically in this nation, and it's reached its zenith, and now it's on the downhill side. We're headed toward the uphill side as a church, and this will be done, set above all nations. And all these blessings shall come on you and overtake you if you shall hearken to the voice of the Eternal your God. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the field, throughout all your habitations. Blessing of God will come. His face will be turned back to us. He's taken his face away from the physical nation. He's also now taken it away from the church as a whole. But he will turn it back to those who diligently hearken to his commandments. That's talking to you and me and others who will be faithful. I include you and me because that's our goal and our purpose. I don't know that we've qualified, but we're working that direction. And we are certainly among the candidates for that. I think you are. I see you trying. I see you working. I see you doing more than I see most people in the Church of God doing. I think you pray more than most. I think you study your Bibles more than most. I think you try and work at this thing more than most. 
I think you're more willing to listen and be taught and learn new things out of this book that we have ignored or not seen before more than most. I thank God for that. I think that you are among the candidates for what we're reading right here. I think I can say that on behalf of the fruits that I see. Now, God can only make those judgments. And he says he will call those people from around the world. But he did say that somebody had to go out in the desert and make a highway for God. Make a way for him. And I think you're doing it. I do believe that. So there's no getting out of this. We've got to go forward. We've got to do what we have to do. So this is talking to us and anybody else who will listen. Blessed shall be the fruit of your body and the fruit of your ground and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your cattle and the flocks of your sheep. Blessed shall be your basket and your store. Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. Wherever you go, whatever you do, in and out, every part of your life, the Eternal shall cause your enemies that rise up against you to be smitten before your face. Doesn't he say fire will come out and devour the enemies or those who try to hurt or kill? It's right here. They shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. They'll all get together and come at you from one direction. It says they'll flee every direction there is in total confusion. Seven ways to Sunday. Where did that expression come from? The Eternal shall command the blessing upon you in the storehouses and in all that you set your hand to do. Wouldn't it be neat... We have this expression we've used, everything that man does turns to gold. Born with a silver spoon, whatever. Wouldn't it be neat that everything you tried worked? Do we have a testimony here? Would somebody please stand and tell me how it feels that everything you have ever done just worked? Do I have any volunteers? Didn't think so. There's probably four of you, but you're embarrassed. <laughs> I think not. We've had a lot of failures, haven't we? Had a lot of things go bad. What an incredible thing this would be. Will be. For those who will listen. All that you set your hand to do, and he shall bless you in the land which the eternal your God gives you. Just ahead. The eternal shall establish you a holy people to himself. Remember Isaiah 54 there, last verse? It will be his righteousness, not ours. Ours is like filthy rags. His is special. As he has sworn to you, if you shall keep the commandments of the eternal your God and walk in all his, or in his ways, 
And all people of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of the Eternal, and they shall be afraid of you. Isn't this what we've been reading and had described in all the prophecies? About how God's people will be set on a high hill, as, or on a hill as a witness to God and a light to the world. And that they will all fear God's people. Nebuchadnezzar came to fear Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Pharaoh feared Joseph and Moses. Herod feared and respected John the Baptist and was unhappy when he had to cut his head off, but he did anyway. And the eternal shall make you plenteous in goods, and the fruit of your body, the fruit of your cattle, and the fruit of your ground, in the land which the eternal swore to you, your fathers, to give you. Wouldn't it be nice to, shortly hereafter, some of you young people, be able to get married, and the land be productive, you wouldn't have any miscarriages, stillborns, have healthy, healthy, good-looking, fine, bouncing children. Wouldn't it be nice to have all those blessings? It's just before us. We'll do things God's way. Even a child is known by his deeds. Proverbs, whatever it is. A peaceful, happy earth is just ahead of you. Do it God's way and you'll be part of it. The eternal shall make you plenteous in goods, wealth and riches, in the fruit of your body, the fruit of your cattle, and the fruit of your ground, and the land which the eternal swore to your fathers to give you. The eternal shall open to you his good treasure, the heaven to give the rain to the land in his season, and to bless all the work of your hand. Wouldn't it be nice to have rain just when you needed it? Here we are out in the desert. We're thankful for rain any time we get it. makes the weeds grow. Wouldn't it be nice not to have the weeds and to have it come at just the right time to make all your plants grow and to have a covert from the heat so that the sun didn't beat your plants down and kill them? God promises all these things. He's going to change the climate for us. It is a microcosm. You know, they build bubbles. They've done it down somewhere down in Arizona in the past. I've read about it. They make these plastic bubbles where they control the climate, the humidity, the temperature, everything, right down to the gnat's eyelid. And make a, as natural and as good an environment as they possibly can. That's the way the Garden of Eden was. And the prophecies in Isaiah 51, I think, of the Garden of God and the Garden of Eden are promised for the end-time people as a microcosm of the millennium to come. Now, where does the temple fit in that? It fits that whole picture we've talked about, seen and accepted all this time. This is just one more piece of the puzzle that seems to fit perfectly in the middle of that microcosm of the millennium God does not destroy people without giving them fair opportunity and warning. The way we looked at it in the church in the past was all of a sudden, 
we'll have the abomination set up and we'll flee to the mountains and trouble, trial and tribulation and punishment will suddenly hit the world. God doesn't do things that way. He's more loving than that. He's going to give them an example people with a controlled climate, with everything perfect, like the Garden of Eden. And it's going to be small. It's not going to be a worldwide empire. The world is going to be out there trying to establish their new world order millennium. Peace on earth, they'll say. Goodwill toward all men. We are going to create the kingdom of God on earth. That's what all these Mormons say. A man mighty and strong is going to come forth and set up the kingdom of God on the earth. Baloney! God, through His true people, is going to set up a small example of the world tomorrow. And people will see it. And they will have opportunity to accept it. Probably over a period of several years. And if they do reject it, then God is going to unleash the horrors upon them. Because it does say that toward the end of the years of the reign of one of the kings of the four divisions of this country as it will come down, in the latter years of that reign, the little horn will come down to try to destroy God's people and to defile the temple. And that is our clue to flee to the mountains, which will be nearby, by the way. It is incredible when you really think it through what God is going to do for this world. It is incredible that he sent his son to live and to die because he so loved the whole world. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is going to give them every opportunity, every chance clearly to accept his people, his Jerusalem, his temple, his way of life. And if they refuse and move against it, all hell is going to break loose on this earth. We haven't gotten there yet. You'll bless all the work of your hand, now the end of verse 12, and you shall lend unto many peoples, and you shall not borrow. You see why I've been stressing this? That we need to get out of debt, we need to get pulled away from the system of this world. God does not want us to be in a poor or a vulnerable position. He wants us to be in a powerful position in a position where we can give and don't have to borrow. Now, the world put us in a position, in many cases, where we didn't have to borrow, but we wanted to. They made it so easy to do. And we suckered, oh, we took the bait. 
and got ourselves head over heels in debt over houses and cars and clothes and movie tickets and you name it. And boy, once you do, it isn't easy to get out of it, is it? We've been being warned, and we didn't listen very well. Herbert Armstrong began to warn us a long time back. Simplify your lives. Get out of debt. Right over our heads. Now we find ourselves with diminishing work, worse jobs, lower pay, and we're still up to here. And it makes it even harder to get out, doesn't it? But we need to work at it. I'm not saying this to make anybody feel bad. Just this is where God wants us to get. So we may have to curtail some of the things that we become used to that we like in order to pay down the debts and to get out of debt and owe no man anything. That is the optimal condition to be in. And we need to be working at it instead of still using the cards and putting a little more on and a little more on. Reverse the process. Work hard at it. Manage your finances very carefully. Budget very carefully. Some of you have never done a budget in your life. Check comes in, go spend her. Where'd your money go? Don't have a clue, just gone. It's time to change. When you keep that third tithe year, God says don't touch it, don't use it when you're poor, don't use it for anything except what He said to use it for. Same is true of your second tithe. You cannot borrow from it. It is set aside for the feasts. And it is stealing if you touch it because it's no longer yours to use as you please. It is what God has set aside for a holy purpose. And even though you take it in your hand and spend it on you and your brothers and sisters, it is for that purpose and that purpose only. Now he says of the first tithe, give it all to the church. All of it. No, there's not first, second, and third tithe in the Bible as such. But there's uses. It says this tithe you give to God. And he consigns it then to the Levites or the ministry. The second one, he says, bind it up in your hand and take it to the feast and spend it there. Well, if you gave all the tithe to the Levite... This must then be a different one because you take all of it and take it to the feast. Now the one we call the third tithe shows a totally different use, doesn't it? It doesn't say to give it to the Levite. It doesn't say to take it to the feast. It says, bind it up in your gates and use it for specific purposes. We call it first, second, and third for convenience. We could call it ABC. It doesn't matter. It's the use that delineates the difference and shows that there's more than one. And those scriptures are all quite plain when you put them all together as you should if you study properly. 
But those are the basis for sound financial management. They teach you to budget. They teach you to put this here, this here, this here. And you are to do it faithfully. Now that teaches you that there's the rent, there's the car, there's the clothes, there's the food, and you set aside money and budget it for those, and then you see if there's money left to go and eat out. Or see if there's money left to buy something you desire. You don't just whip your card out and do it willy-nilly. Unless you know you have the money to pay for it and you will not go in debt to do it. God is telling you here, do not go into credit card debt. Does it say that? I don't see MasterCard or Visa there. But the principle is there. Don't do it. I've done it. You've done it. Time to wake up. Smell the roses. It's time to live within our means. That means we have to say no to ourselves. It means we have to budget. It means we have to be very careful with our money so that we get out of debt and get in the position God wants us in. Is it fun being in debt? No. You don't like to go to the post office box over here and see a pile of bills, do you? I certainly don't. How did you get those bills? By buying things. Some things you may have needed. Other things were choice things. And boy, the advertisers want you to do those choice things, and then they want you to spend money you don't have. God says, don't go there. Don't do that. I like to be in a position of power. Financially. I've been both ways in my life. I've been in debt up to here at times. And I didn't like it a bit. And I've been in a position where I've owned my homes free and clear, where I didn't owe anything to anybody, and I liked that. I would love for us to be in a position where we did not any more owe on this land and we could drop the fees that we pay every month. That would be nice, wouldn't it? Would that be better than writing the check every month? Yes. Now we put ourselves in a position, even on this property, where we are a borrower. And I was part and parcel of that. I think God opened it up and allowed it and made it possible. But at the same time, I don't think he wants us to stay in this position. I think he would love to have us pay it off and drop the fees. I hope that becomes possible so that we are in a position of power, not of paying. Or I hope.
whole lot better off, most of us, than we used to be. I don't know of anybody here that has a mortgage on his house. We've still got a mortgage on the land, but that's not a big payment. And we're working that down. We're working that off. And I look forward to the day that's gone. In the meanwhile, if you'll get your credit cards paid down, your car's paid off, work at it. Budget. Be careful. And get out of debt. You will feel better. You'll be happier. You'll enjoy life more. You might not have some of the things that you like, that you've enjoyed in the past, that you bought on credit, but a lot of the pain and the misery and the heartache and the worry will go away. And I'm not saying it's going to be easy because... Things have gotten worse in this country, and not only have they gotten worse, they're going to get even worse. And people who are strapped with a big mortgage are really feeling it now, and a lot of them are losing their houses, as God said they would. I would like to pay this land off completely so that we have no mortgage. Now, we don't at least have one with a bank. For that, I'm thankful. We owe an individual But we need to fix that, too. I'm going to work on that any way I can to try to get that paid off so that we are in a position of power. So I need to do it as an example, the congregation, or we do, on our overall indebtedness together. But you need to work on it individually, too. Be strict. Be mean with yourself. You deserve a break today. Get what you deserve. That's what all the commercials say. You deserve a cold beer. You deserve this. You deserve a new car. You deserve a new telephone. They got one with more buttons on it now. You deserve one. That's what the old ads all tell you in one way or another. Sucker. (laughs) We are. We have been. Can I see the hands of those who have not been suckers? We're all in it together. I'm not getting after you, brethren. I'm not mad. Please. I'm just saying here is something that this society has done to us and our human nature has let them do it. And we need to fix it. We need to get in a position of power instead of a position of what am I going to do? And conditions are not easy right now to do that, but we need to be working at it. Well, here's, here's something you can do. See, these are the words of God. These are the things he says he would like for us to be, the position he would love us to be in, and one which we'd love to be in, but we got suckered into a different spot. Now, whatever it takes, we need to fix it. So that we will lend to many peoples and not borrow. And the eternal shall make you the head and not the tail. And you shall be above only and you shall not be beneath. If that you hearken to the commandments of the eternal your God, which I command you this day to observe and to do them. What has our physical nation done? The exact same thing. 
what was it, 30 years ago, we were the world's biggest creditor nation. We were in a position still of power. People owed us, we didn't owe them. Now we owe the Chinese a trillion dollars, two trillion maybe by now. We are the biggest debtor nation on earth. We are bankrupt. We have become the tail and not the head. If you need to see an example of what God is talking about, look at our country today. Creating trillions of dollars out of thin air, which will ultimately have no value whatsoever. We have become the tail. Sad to say. We're going a different direction, aren't we? We're going the different direction. We see the light. We see that this is wrong. and We see what it's doing to our country. So we're going the other way. We're working hard at getting out of debt so that we become the head and not the tail. That's what God wants of you and me now. He wants us to be in a position of power in every way and put us over all the nations. Let's go there. Thank <laughs> you.